HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, and we're here with Nastasha de Lopez Hammer. Just phone back from Miami just this morning. Call in all of your questions to Nastasha, give them the number. 718. Aha. Uh-huh. Brutal. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Ha- hammer the Nastasha Lopez, huh? I know it, I know it. She doesn't even have wow. our number in her brain, huh? Anyway, coming to you live for the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, today's uh, episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, which is a long time ago, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. We've had their beef, and it's, uh, it's quite good, right, Nastasha? Yes, Steve. Mm. All right. So um, we actually – I got back, what, yesterday, day before yesterday. Nastasha just got back. We were at the uh, Miami South Beach Food and Wine Festival. I was doing a uh, thingamajig for the Liberty Science Center, which is having an exhibition on cooking, which is going to open up in the fall, The Science of Cooking, which is going to be very interesting. Chris Young from uh, the New Modernist Cuisine Cookbook was uh, doing it with me, and we were basically fluffing for the Food Network stars, you know, like uh, <laughs> Guy Fieri and uh, Rachel Ray and uh, Tyler Florence and, you know, the Ace of Cakes and uh, Giada and all these people were were coming out to do a show for uh, the kids and their parents, and we would sit there and uh, do some some science questions, fluff them up a little bit. But it was fun. We had a, a bunch of little kids ask us about uh, liquid nitrogen. I had a kid ask me if uh, agar agar was a chemical. I was so jacked, so when asked me that question, I got to go off on one of my favorite tangents about how uh, you know a cow is a bag of chemicals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. But the most important part of the entire thing was that we got to visit some rare fruit, fruit places, tropical fruit places in South Florida. So those of you that know me know I'm kind of a, uh, a temperate uh, fruit nut. Uh, Nastasha and I have gone and sampled pears at the Kent, at the Brogdale, a couple hundred varieties. I've done uh, 
a couple hundred varieties of apples at the uh, Geneva Station, the Agricultural Experiment Station up in upstate New York. Uh, anyway, I'll go anywhere to semper, uh, sample um, a whole boatload of uh, temperate fruits. We've done semi-tropical stuff. Nastasha and I did citrus uh, you know, almost a year ago at uh, Gene Lester's Ranch out in uh, Watsonville, California, a couple hundred varieties there. Of, we only tasted 100, though. You know, so anyway, but uh, we've never done full-on hardcore tropical fruit. So south of Miami, right at the very tip of uh, Florida in South Dade, there are two places we visited that uh, are simply amazing and worth a visit. Um, one of them is the Fairchild. Now, Fairchild uh, has been a garden for a long time that has many, many different varieties. They store many different varieties of tropical fruit, citrus, and otherwise. Um, we visited not their show garden, but their kind of actual tree garden. Unfortunately, most of the stuff we wanted to taste there, like mangoes and jackfruits, aren't in season right now. So we're going to have to go back, and we are going to go back. Uh, Chris Young, uh, Nastasha, Harold McGee, and I are going back to there in July to the Mango Festival, and we're going we're gonna to eat mangoes until we die or they kick us out of the park, one of the two, and jackfruit, because they also have, I think, like 75 varieties of jackfruit, which we're going to you know eat until we're all jacked up, as they say. But the second place that you need to visit, less well-known in South Dade, is the Fruit and Spice Park, the Miami-Dade County Fruit and Spice Park. And we had a, an amazing tour of that place. And they have – you just pay well, – I don't know what the entrance fee is. It's not that much. You pay. You go in and you could take a tour if you want and you just eat a preposterous amount of the, the craziest uh, tropical fruit. So of the stuff that we had in season, I think there's one called uh, Japotacaba. Sounds like chupacabra, but it's not. It's chupotacaba, and it's they look like little grapes, but they taste musky, and they grow on the actual bark of the tree. So the tr- like the little tree, shrub tree is growing there, and and the little grapey things are growing right on the bark, and they taste kind of like a grape with a little bit of a muskiness. Another really amazing one is uh, canistel. Canistel they call like almost like a, it's similar to uh, the lucuma, which is the the fruit that's uh, famous in Peru that I've had shipped up, kind of uh, preserved, which I didn't like at all um because isn't that that stuff that we were given that we didn't like at all i don't think so i think the preserved stuff from was it peru or chile that we were given yeah no anyway i I think that was lucuma no no i just threw it out (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, but Canistel uh, has it almost a taste of sweet potatoes and uh, kind of an egg custardy fruit. Amazing stuff. And it makes a fantastic ice cream. If you're in uh, Whole Foods in South Dade, by the way, you should go to uh, get Gabby. Gabby's ice cream. She makes some amazing ice cream with both Canistel and the next thing I'm about to tell you about, which is black sapote. Black sapote, they call it the chocolate pudding fruit. And you cut it in half and it's dark and it looks kind of like chocolate pudding, but it's super creamy and makes us like an, it makes, I think, an amazing ice cream. You like the ice cream, right, Nastasha? It was good. Yeah, it was very good ice cream. So anyway, uh, please, if you're ever in South Dade, uh, go visit the Fruit and Spice Park. And if you're from Miami and you've never been to the Fruit and Spice Park, you should just jump out of your window right now. If you're spending all of your time, like, you know, being all pumped and tan on South Beach like a moron, you should get out of there and go to the Fruit and Spice Park because it's a lot more rewarding. I have to say the whole South Beach thing, not my style. What about you, Nastasha? Did you enjoy the actual South Beach? No, I don't like South Beach very much. No? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, on to the questions. So, from a couple of weeks – oh, by the way, the reason I missed uh, last week's show, I was in Seattle, uh, actually Bellevue, Washington, at the lab of Nathan Mirvold, the Microsoft uh, billionaire uh, food nut who, along with Chris Young and – 
you know, uh, you know, 13 other people uh, have the past four or five years been tolling, uh, toiling away at the Modernist Cuisine Cookbook, which I believe is just released now, actually shipping now from Amazon.com. So you and about 450 of your closest friends, that means $450, can go on Amazon and purchase, uh, you know, the Modernist Cuisine, which is, I think, six volumes or something like that. Uh, it, you know, I, I know some of the stats from visiting them. It weighs you know, like 40 pounds, ten, you know, four pounds of it of is ink. It's got like, you know, the greatest ink ever made. There's only like two factories on earth, uh, two printing houses on earth that can do the printing that they, that they can do. Anyway, amazing cookbook. So I flew out there to Seattle to have a dinner at uh, Nathan's lab. Uh, and uh, it was, it was, it was really, it was awesome, awesome experience. We, uh, I'll, I'll probably, we'll probably blog about it if I ever have time. Remember, uh, for those of you that are, are angry at me for not writing more blog posts, starting tomorrow, I'm contractually obliged to have a post a week. So, you know, we have that to look forward to anyway. Hey, but, so, hey Dave, we got an email question. An email question? All right. Well, after the bre- I'll read it during the break, and then we'll, well, I'll see whether cool. I know the answer to it. So the um, – so anyway, so I'm sitting there at the place, and the taxi that's supposed to come take me to the airport, uh, I missed, missed, didn't come. So came like 20 minutes late, had problem in security, uh, missed my airplane back to New York by one minute, and slept in the Seattle airport because I was too pissed off and tired to actually go back to anyone's, uh, anyone's house or anything like that. Uh, I, I later found out that all of our friends, you know, uh, had stayed on at the dinner and partied till 4 a.m. while I was busy being pissed off in the airport, but... There you have it. Anyway, so um, on to the questions. A couple weeks ago, someone uh, called in, I believe, and said, what's going on in preserved lemons? What is it that causes them uh, to you know, be preserved? And you know, What is it? It's probably, is it a bacteria? Is it whatever? Uh, and I didn't know the answer. I was you know, wholehearted, you know, whole, full-on stumped. And the answer uh, – I forget the name of the person who called in. But the answer is yeasts. So uh, I looked online for it, and it is a couple strains of yeast that are involved in the preserved lemons that can survive the saltiness of that environment and give the uh, preserved lemons their characteristic flavor. I then conferred with uh, Harold McGee when I saw him out at the um, – when I saw him out at the, at the Nathan Mirvold dinner, and he agreed that, yes, he had heard uh, it was a yeast, and it makes sense to him. So that's the answer. It is yeast. Okay. Now, uh, on to the first of this week's questions. Josh from Somerset, England writes in. He says, I was very interested in the article on rapid infusion on the cooking issues site. What I'd like to know is can the what, – what are we supposed to say, ISI or EC? EC, Dave. EC. Well, uh, what I'd like to know is can the EC soda siphon be used to do the technique instead of the whipper? Quite simply, I've wanted both for a long time but can only really justify getting one or the other because of money and space, etc. What are the advantages and disadvantages? Is it best to use a one liter or a half liter for home use? And he, he uh, pumps us up, up and says, the technique is genius. I wish I could attend the fundraiser to discover more things like this. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much for the kind words. And uh, if you can only buy one – in fact, if you can only buy two, just get the just get the whippers. I wouldn't bother getting the uh, the soda siphons. The soda siphons are really specialized, and most of the time when we're doing, first of all, soda siphons have a very thin neck, uh, so it's hard to get a lot of stuff uh, into them. Uh, second of all, soda siphons they draw from the bottom, so really they're only good if you're like a big Three Stooges fan and you like to spray people in the face with seltzer, or if you're going to keep the seltzer in the bottle for a long time and keep it in the fridge. 
most of the techniques we do, I'm pouring all of the stuff out right away, and I find that you can actually lose quite a bit of the carbonation as you spray out uh, through the spray head on, a, on one of those siphons. So for a number of reasons, even if I was going to carbonate with one of those things, I would never carbonate with the soda siphon. I actually carbonate with the um, with the with the whip, with the whipper, the only difference is um, that you know you have to shake it more to get the CO two in, right? If you really wanted to, it wanted to make it act more like uh, a soda siphon. As you put the cartridge in, you could hold it upside down, and then the CO two would rocket through the drink as it goes up, which is basically all the the only thing that the soda siphons accomplishing for you. Soda siphons also harder to clean, so I would I would only buy whippers. I would even carbonate, like I say, if you were going to carbonate in one of those, which I don't really recommend, but if you're going to do that, I would carbonate in the whipper. So I would I would buy only whippers. I think they're uh, just a superior superior product all around the, the cream whippers. Um, now, uh, as to the one liter or the half liter uh, for home use, it, like if you're going to do a lot of drinks, then I would get the and you're going to carbonate them. I would get the liter. If you're going to be doing a lot of rapid infusion, you're just going to go through a couple more chargers. Either that, or you're going to have to infuse into more product if you have if you have the liter one. So, you know, I, we write all of our recipes for the half-liter ones because we're doing lots of tests, um, and they don't scale exactly. So you can use either one, but just be aware that if you use a liter whipper with a smaller amount of product in it, you're going to have to probably throw an extra charger into it. So you're going to have the expense of using extra chargers if you're using the liter as opposed to the half-liter. But both will work. Uh, what, do you think, what do you think about that? Is that uh, That's a good answer, yeah. Dave. All right. Josh also says, uh, P.S., I love James Brown as much as the next guy, but surely you've got another CD you can play. Well, uh, it's interesting you should uh, say that, Josh, because someone else uh, emailed uh, just the same week and said that they uh, enjoyed the James Brown because it's exactly uh, um, in sync with their treadmill as they're listening to the podcast. So now I've got a, a for and an against on the James Brown. I could come up with a different James Brown song perhaps. Uh, or I could I could possibly move to something a little less funky, like a Merle Haggard or something like this. I'm not sure. What, what are your thoughts, Nastasha? Should we stick with the James Brown? I didn't know we were allowed to change our, our middle theme. Maybe we're not allowed to change our theme music, but we can change our middle music. I don't know. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Any, any thoughts? <laughs> no thoughts. No thoughts? No. Nast- Nastasha's too tired coming in off of the... Uh... You answer your own questions. Well, not answer my questions. What do you mean? I had a question. You're just sitting there staring into space. I don't know if you're about to have an answer or if you're in a, a catatonic state over here. She, Nastasha literally had to get up at oh dark thirty this morning, and she's pounding coffee as we speak, trying to text all the people that were texting her when she was on the plane and like in in super space land. So I have to answer her questions for her because she looks, to be frank, stunned. Anyway, uh, okay. Uh, Cho and I don't know. I assume that's a last name. Cho uh, writes oh, in. First name. That's first name. Cho? Okay, Cho writes in, and uh, in all caps, by the way, so Cho seriously wants an answer. What temperature should I poach an egg at? Okay, Cho, this is a, uh, a, I'm assuming you have an immersion circulator, which I'm sure most of our re- you know, listeners know. An immersion circulator is something that keeps the temperature of water exactly accurate. Uh, you can buy one at Williams-Sonoma. Uh, we love them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what temperature you should cook the egg to really depends on what you're looking to do. The, the lowest temperature we ever cook an egg to is 62 degrees Celsius, which is 143 and a half in Fahrenheit land. And that is a runny poached egg, okay? Um, so that's like, you know, you're going to put on eggs benedict, whatever. You cook it in the shell. 
uh, for an hour. You can actually get away with 45 minutes, but you, know, you cook it an hour. And then after that hour, you drop the temperature down to uh, like 60 or 59 degrees. And then it can sit there for hours and hours and hours. And then when the time comes, you just crack the egg out and uh, the thin white separates from the thick white and you have a perfectly poached egg. If you're going to serve it as is and you want it to look a little more white, to look a little brighter white and well done, you can put it through simmering water at, on its way out to service. Now – uh, that is going to be 95% of all the eggs you do. If you want a little bit creamier in the inside, you don't want it runny, then you cook it to uh, 63 degrees Celsius, which is 145.5 for an hour on the dot, and then you lower the uh, – these are for large eggs, large chicken eggs. Then you lower the temperature down to 60 again, and that is a creamy egg yolk. It still will run, but it's very, very creamy, good for a consomme. If you want it just set but still very soft and creamy, 64 Celsius, 147 uh, Fahrenheit is where you should go. If you want, uh, also for an hour, if you want something that is kind of like a hard-boiled egg but um, not, then I would uh, put it in simmering water for uh, like four minutes, uh, five minutes, something like this. Then put it into 70 degrees Celsius water, 158 Fahrenheit, for about an hour, and the yolk will be perfectly yellow and creamy. It won't smell like an overcooked egg, and you'll have a perfect uh, hard-boiled egg. Um, if you want a uh, an interesting thing, Hervé Tis, who uh, writes a lot of books on uh, the science of cooking, all of them I think bad and wrong. Uh, he uh, and by the way, Tis is spelled this. If you're looking for it, don't write T E E S in the Google. Write Hervé this because that's how he spells his name. Hervé Tis has written and said that the 65 degrees Celsius, 149 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, is the perfect kind of poached egg. Because – and this just goes to show you how little he thinks about things. Uh, he puts his eggs in the uh, – or I was told this by someone who saw him run the experiment. He puts his eggs in what he calls a very highly calibrated oven. Now, anyone who's ever cooked an egg in a circulator knows that 65 degrees Celsius is not a, uh, is not a runny egg. Um, and it's because there's evaporative cooling out of the eggshell. Uh, in fact, you can use this. You can do Maillard uh, reaction humming eggs in the oven by cooking them in the shell in the oven. And as they evaporate, the alkalinity of the egg goes up and they, go, uh, they undergo browning reactions in the oven, even without a pressure cooker. So uh, the evaporative cooling alone is enough to drop the temperature of the egg as it's cooking uh, by about uh, two or three degrees to get a runny egg yolk. And so Hervé Tis, chew on that one. In fact, he did a demo at the French Culinary Institute five years ago, um, and he, he had us set up a bunch of circulators to cook us eggs, and he said all of these eggs are two degrees off. And the reason is is because he did all of his initial tests in an oven. Just goes to show you what he knows. Anyway, uh, let's go to our first commercial break. Call in all your questions to se- uh, 718 – what is it? 497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. There's so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. Call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, Jam. Sure getting down. Look at him. We're going to have a bunk. Yeah, 
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune into the Speakeasy every Wednesday at 3 p.m., where host Damon Volte will discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe, with guests ranging from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, and every expert and enthusiast in between. Learn from some of the world's leading experts in mixology, bar history, distillation, and brewing about how we enjoy imbibing today. Again, that's every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hello, and welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So uh, the email question uh, came in and said that when I, when I was in Seattle, did I get a chance to visit Armandino Batali's um, Salumi place, and where do I rank him in kind of American ham producers? Now, this is an interesting question. So Armandino Batali is, in fact, uh, Mario Batali's dad. He was a – it's a really interesting case because uh, he – he used to be a chemical engineer, I believe, at Boeing, but I'm, I, I can't remember. I interviewed him a number of years ago for uh, an article I was doing on uh, house-cured meats at, uh, for Food Arts Magazine. And he, as a scientist, is very, like, uh, you know, very keyed into safety and proper techniques and a, and, a, and a really interesting guy. But I've only ever had his products at um, – at some Batali restaurants. I didn't get a chance to go there when I went out. I wish I had had the time. I was basically – I would have been in and out had I made my airplane. Instead, I was in and uh, stayed you know, stayed over, unfortunately, in the airport. So I didn't get a chance to try uh, basically any of the really interesting places out there with the exception of Nathan Mirvold's, which was quite interesting. Um, so uh, I don't really I, – I wish I had more to, more to say on it. The one thing I will say is as, as far as I can tell uh, – and I've never had his famous uh, lamb prosciutto either. Uh, but as far as I can tell, uh, he's not doing an American style of product. He's doing more of an Italian style of product. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to rank him alongside of, uh, of American producers uh, you know, like uh, Sam Edwards or Alan Benton or uh, Nancy Mahaffey, which Nancy Mahaffey is from uh, Colonel Newsom's, or you know, pe- people of that, of that nature, or like uh, Finchville Farms. I mean, they, the, the, these are what I consider am- American products. They're making American country hams, which I consider to be fundamentally different from European-style products. The, you know, the, the temperature that they're, that they're done at is, is different. American hams are typically aged at a much higher temperature uh, after they go through their equalization process. So I just I, – I, I wouldn't rank them um, – I wouldn't rank them together, but uh, the, the products of his that I've had, I thought were very, very good. Um, so next time I go out to Seattle, I will be sure to have uh, some, I will be sure to go to the site and have uh, a whole boatload of uh, Armandito Batali's uh, products. Okay, so uh, I had a question come in. It says, "I'm interested in cooking steak sous vide, but I have a question on searing methods. It is obviously possible to use a super hot skillet, grill, or broiler? Uh, you forgot deep fryer, which is my favorite way to do it." Um, to uh, sear, but what about a blowtorch? At focus points, it can reach a much higher temperature than any of the other techniques, meaning more pink inside and crispier, more caramelized outside. When you say caramelized, I'm assuming you mean Maillard because it's not actually caramel, but you know we all say caramelized. I'm just saying in case anyone's a stickler. In case Jeffrey Steingard never listens to this, he'll call up and scream if I don't say that, so you know, it's just the only reason I'm saying it. Also, this might be a way to achieve an even uh, Maillard reaction on meats that are not of uniform thickness or dimensions. A third advantage is that sear- if searing is taking place before the water bath, then a more shallow searing depth would cause the meat to contract less, opening the way for uh, non-traditional cuts of meat. Uh, and this comes in from Justin. Okay, uh, now, 
Oh, he also says that could you use uh, some welding equipment, and if so, what kind of welding equipment would you use? Now, here are my thoughts on torches. Uh, first of all, when we're searing, of course, we sear before and after, and the reason we sear both before and after is we sear before to kill some of the bacteria on the outside. We're talking about low-temperature cooking, by the way. So you cook something to the, to the temperature you want it. So if I'm cooking a steak to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, I have a water bath at 130 degrees Fahrenheit, and the steak is perfectly cooked all the way through. I mean, it's great technique. Um, typically, I would sear it beforehand to start crust development, start flavor development, kill bacteria on the outside. By the time it comes out of the water bath, uh, the crust is gone, and so you sear it again to put a nice crust on it. The trick is when you're searing it, as uh, Justin says, you need a very high temperature because you don't want to overcook the meat. So the way I usually do that is by dropping the temperature of the bath a bunch. So if I'm cooking at 55, I'll drop the bath to 50 degrees Celsius for like 30 minutes before I sear it so that I drop the whole temperature down and, and I can sear it really hard without overcooking the meat. And that's in general how I accomplish it. Here are my thoughts on torches in general. First of all, I wouldn't go and use, if you mean by welding equipment, straight up acetylene. I wouldn't use acetylene because if your mix is not exactly, first of all, acetylene is ridiculously hot, absurdly hot. There's a famous guy uh, when, uh, when um, they were building the Spirit of St. Louis, uh, you know, Lindbergh's airplane, uh, the guy at Ryan Air, Ryan was the company that built the Spirit of St. Louis. He used to cook fish on, with uh, acetylene torches on pieces of aluminum, but by all accounts, they tasted god-awful, like fuel. I have never cooked with acetylene, although I have a torch somewhere. I, I haven't fired up the acetylene in a long time, but my feeling is that acetylene probably wouldn't be uh, a good call. Um, now, the commercially, most people use uh, propane and uh, butane torches. Now, the problem with propane and butane torches is that if, in, unless you have a special source of the gas, they add uh, odorants, things that smell to them, so that you can smell if there's a leak, right? And typically they're adding uh, either methylmercaptan or ethylmercaptan or some group of mercaptans, also known as like methan- methanethiol. These are, they're sulfur-containing compounds. You can smell in very minute quantities. If they're not completely combusted, right, they tend to uh, stink up your product and you have what we call torch taste, all right. Now, the more fat there is on a on a product, right? The more you can smell the torch taste. So things that aren't very fatty tend not to pick up a lot of torch taste, but things that are high in fat tend to pick up a lot of this torch taste. Now, there are two ways you can get rid of torch taste. You can either use a gas that doesn't have any of these odorants in them, but they're kind of hard to find. That's why a lot of pipe um, pipe uh, lighters and cigar lighting butane that are very clean butanes, those butane torches tend to smell less uh, because they, I think, have li- less of that product in them. The other thing you can do is make sure that your torch has complete combustion. So some torches are much better than others at completely combusting. Most of the torches that we use in our in our houses, like the, the, the propane torches, aren't very good at it, and so you get a lot of, a lot of torch taste. You can take and fire that torch through a grid, heat up the grid, and then that will um, basically um, enhance the combustion of these things and cause you not to have a torch taste. But it te- we used a chinois, but it tends to ruin your chinois. So I had some nichrome wire, and that also works, but then you got to go buy some nichrome wire. Chris Young of the Modernist Cuisine uh, cookbook, I was asking him about it. He uses MAP gas, M-A-P-P gas. I don't know if they add an odorant to it or not, but MAP gas can be purchased at Home Depot. It's a lot hotter. Now, if you want to go really balls out on this, right? I have used a roofing torch with a propane tank as a searing uh, device uh, as a test. Uh, the, The problem with a roofing torch is... A roofing torch will light your whole uh, kitchen on fire if you're not if you're not careful. But uh, I was able to get a complete enough combustion with a roofing torch such that I had no 
No torch taste at all. I scorched the entire work surface that the thing was on. It was hard to get an even uh, crust on it, but I did get it to work. So first of all, that's the first problem. You have torch taste. The second problem is is that I think certain Maillard reactions, um, you, you, you don't want it too, too hot. I haven't been able to run experiments yet to figure out what the maximum heat that you want is. But I don't think that the Maillard products you get from a hyper-intense heat like a torch are the same as the ones you get from a more normal kind of uh, heat. So I don't think that it's the same. And also, you don't really want just a thin layer of black on the outside of a product. For a real crunchy, uh, like really crunchy, crispy crust, you need a certain depth of crust formation. And if you did that with a torch, you'd have to either be very, very gentle or you'd you'd, um, basically incinerate the top while you were getting that, that thickness of crust that you wanted. I also tend to find that torching is really uneven in terms of its distribution. So even though theoretically you can get all the pieces evenly, it's hard to get an even torch job. So if you look at a torch sear, often you'll see spots that are darker than others, which isn't as pleasant as, as you could be. Now, maybe you could get around that by using something giant, but then it's easy to go overboard uh, really quickly. So I tend to only use the torch as a touch-up in areas. Like if you have a bird like around the thigh area uh, on, or around like where the wings are, sometimes you can lose a little there. And I'll do a little touch-up. Up, but I tend not to use them as my primary uh, searing um, searing thing, right? Um, so, anyway, that's my that's my feelings on it. Uh, now, maybe we should uh, go to our second commercial break, and I'll boot up the rest of the questions. So, let's go to our second commercial break, and we'll be back in a minute. I love it. All right. Since this is the second time I've allowed to have my down D in the middle, uh, we'll, maybe we'll change it. So now that you guys know how awesome the down D is, you know you can just go listen to it on your own, and we'll get a we'll get a different song for the uh, for the thing. I do like D, right? The down D is good. Do Holland Notes next. Time. I am not going to do Holland Notes, Nastasha. What do you want to do? You want to do uh, Man Eater? <laughs> what? Which which one do you want to do? Genesis. No, we will not do Genesis. <laughs> this is one thing I know we will not do. All right. Uh, no offense. No offense to Genesis fans. I mean, uh, you know, 
Nastasha is more of a Phil Collins invisible touch or Susudio kind of a kind of a girl. I think that's my feeling on Nastasha. So call in your questions too seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Well, you know, if we're gonna do Genesis, you want to do like that's all. Remember that song? That's all. Sing it. No, I'm not gonna sing. There's no way on earth I'm gonna <laughs> sing it. No way. Anyway. Okay, uh, I have a question coming in from Hawaii, I think. Uh, Aaron Melvin calls in. I assume it's from Hawaii because Aaron grows lilikoi. And uh, what that is is a Hawaiian passion fruit. And actually, we had some delicious passion fruit down at, in Miami at uh, Gabby's farm, mm-hmm. right? Of course, I didn't really get to taste it because Nastasha pounded the whole thing. That but, is you know. such a lie. Whatever. Okay, we have a rather extreme overabundance uh, of lilikoi in our garden. Oh, yeah, in Molokai is in uh, Hawaii, which I wish I could go. Uh, Someday we will get to go. A nice problem to have. Uh, I've recently made a lilikoi souffle and lilikoi creme brulee. Both were delicious and intensely flavored, but the texture is not perfect as the dairy was just beginning to curdle. Since the dairy is already high fat, I'm not sure where to turn to try and prevent curdling without reducing the intensity of the lilikoi. I could try mixing some cornstarch into the dairy before combination with the lilikoi juice, but would you recommend another hydrocolloid technique? Um, certainly, in my somewhat off-the-cuff attempts, uh, these could have used a bit more structure or solidity. Now, uh, you could use something like you could uh, pre, uh, gel, pre-gel the uh, dairy or add it to add a little bit of carrageenan. Uh, to it, carrageenan and locust bean gum. If you add carrageenan and locust bean gum, these are the same stabilizers that are used in ice creams. Um, I would use uh, probably, if you don't want it too firm, I would use uh, iota uh, carrageenan. That's going to be more puddingy. And if you want it a little firmer, you can use kappa, which is rigid. But I wouldn't use kappa actually in a high acid situation. First of all, you don't want it rigid, and second of all, uh, in a high acid situation, it, there's a possibility that there might be some carcinogenic uh, action with carrageenan at very low pH. Um, but it hasn't been proved yet. But I tend to stay away from kappa carrageenan at low pH. But you could use, uh, I think, some uh, iota carrageenan and LBG, and and that should take you somewhat closer to stopping it from curdling. But if that's not working for you, cornstarch should also uh, prevent it from breaking. But cornstarch will definitely stop. I know cornstarch will definitely stop egg yolks from uh, from curdling when they're overheated because uh, why, that's how Wiley uh, makes his um, that's how Wiley makes his um, his mayonnaise is a, his a hollandaise sauce. He adds uh, enough starch to the egg yolk so that he can heat it up without uh, curdling the egg yolk. So uh, any of those techniques would work. So hopefully you know you could you could try one of those things and hopefully someday we can go to Hawaii and try some of these things. Anyway, uh, he also tried uh, to make Methacel F50 meringues uh, with his uh, Lilikoi. And we actually use regular passion fruit puree a lot. F50 is a product that uh, is a whipping agent. You can make mousses with it, like uh, almost like shaving cream, very dense mousses. Um, and they act like egg whites, and they can be whipped. And so what you do is you make a meringue out of something like a puree, a passion fruit puree, let's say, or a Lilikoi puree, and then you uh, you just put it on a dehydrator and you, and you dehydrate them and they turn into into crunchy meringues uh in his oven because it's so humid there they got uh, kind of dense uh not uh, super uh crunchy but then he he hit it with uh, he brulee the top of it to add it more crunch and he says it makes uh, an excellent pavlova base and i'm glad that worked out for you i think that's a genuinely delicious technique uh, he also says he was glad to hear our thoughts on chocolate tempering from two weeks ago have we ever experimented with sous vide tempering so Basically, the idea is um, – and by the way, yes, it works. There are people that do it. I haven't done it. So what you can do is instead of – if you have chocolates in tr- – old school traditional tempering techniques assume like you know where you, where you um, 
you know, where you have to go through a bunch of different steps are for taking chocolate that's not in temper and bringing it into temper. If you have chocolate that is already in temper and you just want to melt it and keep it in temper, uh, then you can just throw it in a, in a sous vide bag, vac it down, throw it in water, uh, and set it at exactly the melting point you want. And it's going to work uh, fine. You can also actually do the, the temperature ramps uh, in a bag by moving them around if you, if you wanted to. The one issue with it, and people do this, and they can keep it in temper a long time because the temperature is very accurate within a couple tenths of a degree. Uh, the problem is you got to make sure that when you take it out, that you take it out and you don't get any water in the chocolate off the bag because there's a lot of it's easy to mess things up that way. So I would put it into something that's easy to get something out of. Like I would seal your chocolate into a pastry bag instead of into a regular bag um, when you're when you're working. But yes, it would be uh, basically an attention-free way of doing it. Okay, uh, Pepperoni Bill, which is an awesome name. I haven't gotten a chance to check out Pepperoni Bill's website yet, but Pepperoni Bill is – it's got to be one of the better names, like the, one of the better handles that people use on the internet. Do they still say handle or is that only from the CB era? I think that's from the CB era because I don't know what it is. Hey, you know what? Speaking of CB era, what if we moved to Convoy as our, as our song? No? No? Mm-mm. No? Mm-mm. I love Convoy. Anyway, uh, Pepperoni Bill, uh, basically just a comment. He says, um, love the show. James Brown music is perfect sync with his, uh, f- uh, with his treadmill walk. So he's the, he's the James Brown lover. He'll be at the Pizza Expo in Las Vegas March 1st through 3rd. Just wonder if you guys had any plans of attending. If not, we'll have to meet some other way. Maybe you can come to my pizza joint someday when I finally open one. Well, seeing as how it is March 1st right now and we were not in the Pizza Expo in Las Vegas, no. But we hope that you were having an excellent time at the Pizza Expo. I wish I could be at the Pizza Expo because I love myself some pizza. But uh, I've also never been to Vegas. You? Never? Yeah, it's bad. You wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it? Mm. Nah, no, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm weird that way. Anyway, so uh, Pepperoni Bill, let us know how it is. Okay, Alan from D.C. writes in, been a fan of the podcast for a while, uh, as a fan of food science, and he's decided it's time to start playing with some of the fun techniques that we talk about. Uh, he has the ability to build a basic immersion circulator, but wanted to know uh, my thoughts on what is needed. His understanding is that uh, he needs a heat source, a simple fan, and a control feedback loop. Um, so he says, control loops are fun. I can handle that. What I want to know is how exact the temperature needs to be and what kind of fluctuations might be allowed. Are there interesting recipes that require changing the temperature partway through the preparation and how precisely rapidly do these changes need to be? Any other thoughts on what my circulator needs to do? Uh, Alan from D.C. Now, uh, okay, so it's not a fan you need. If you want to build an immersion circulator, I mean, if you want to build your own t- temperature loop, that's great. But everyone uses basically what's called PID control, PID control, which is proportional, uh, integrative, and derivative control, right? And this control uh, loop technology, basically this control algorithm, it allows you to go directly up to the temperature and not overshoot it, not porpoise around like a bang-bang does, right? And uh, very, very few people write their own control loops. If you're good with a uh, microprocessor, you can look up... um, Someone for the Arduino wrote code to do uh, um, a PID loop um, for his coffee maker. And you can look up on the web under Sylvia PID Arduino, and there's code out there that you can write to help you write code to do it. But that's the only really method that people use accurately because it needs to not fluctuate around. So you don't want to use an on-off temperature control. You want to use PID, PID. The other thing is is it's not a fan that they use. Uh, Most people, when they're building their own, you can buy a small uh, pump. Um, You can buy a small pump that, you, you know, 
like one that's actually used in a circulator, but the vast majority of people use aquarium pumps. And you can either bubble air in, which moves just moves around by bubbling air, or you can actually pump water. And if you look online there, the, the pump that people use to do recirculated mash, R-I-M-S, for brewing, there's a lot of there's a couple of cheap pumps in the like fifteen dollar range that can handle it and can handle the temperatures and can pump a good amount of liquid because you need it to move around a lot. Um, the other thing is you're going to need um, – all the commercial circulators are 1,000 watts. Um, they're 1,000 oh. th- they're watts. So you're going to want about 1,000 watts of heating. More heating is not going to hurt you. The problem is if you go over 1,000 watts, you're going to have to make sure that you have a plug that can handle it, right? So all the circulators that are built are basically built to go into a standard 15-amp plug. And once you go – you know. Over a thousand, you're gonna have to start worrying about it. But if you have your own plug, you can make it as powerful as you want, and then it's gonna go up and down um, a lot faster. It's gonna be a lot more uh, responsive. And so, like these are the kinds of things that you need to. Uh, these are the kind of things you need to to do. I would I would say that you want your temperature to be within a couple of tenths of a degree. Um, in terms of okay, so there's two things. There's accuracy and there's precision, right? So the question is, how accurate do you need to be? You need to be within about. Uh, Three tenths, I'd say, uh, of a degree Celsius, accurate and precise. In ter- okay, so accuracy is like how close are you to what the temperature you really want, and precision is how often can you repeat it. And as long as your accuracy is within like three tenths, you'll be able to recreate other people's recipes. Now, your precision should be dead on, like a tenth of a degree or so, because there's no reason for it not to be. A, P- you know, a PID loop can do easily that, and that way your recipes, even if you're not accurate, even if you're wildly off accuracy wise if it's precise if you can repeat it again and again then um then you're you're good to go and that's why you know speak to philip preston who is the you know the guy who builds the the circulators that we use from polyscience um he says yeah like even the old uh, analog ones are extremely precise like once you set the the knob on the analog one it's going to hit the same temperature all the time and stay there with very 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 high degree of precision it's just not accurate so you have to use a second thermometer to uh to to judge exactly where you are because it doesn't have a, a readout on um doesn't have a readout on exactly how uh, you know how hot it is. So those are my thoughts on building your own uh, thing. Now, I've built many um, many of these in my time. Um, wh- what I used to do was I would get like an uh, you know they were all bad. Let's put it this way: I've built like three or four of them, and I now use the PolyScience one just because the homebrew ones are always uh, how to put this a little bit of a pain in the butt. Right now, the <coughs> Philip. Uh, well, obviously. So there, there's when I was doing it. I, whenever I do anything, it's totally ghetto, spit, bubblegum, ridiculous. Like so, what used to happen with me is I would get shocked. Like I used, I didn't build one once where I used a bunch of those coffee heaters that cost like two bucks that you get at the dollar store. Even though it's at the dollar store, they cost two bucks anyway. You throw them into the thing, you throw a bunch of them in, and then when you go in to get your uh, your eggs out of the circulator, you know what happens? <clears throat> yeah, you get shocked, like really badly shocked. You know what I mean? So that one was out the window. I built another one. Where you know I, I bought like a heater for like uh, twenty bucks off a of McMaster car, and but it's just like now I have like wires sitting everywhere, and like you know I, now that I have kids in my house, I didn't want them running around with like these wires out everywhere. But this is because I'm a moron, and all I care about is functionality. There are people out online if you search like the Make community or the Instructable community or any one of these DIY sites, there are people that know exactly what like plastic box like you know they're like go buy the Rubik's cube, not you know got to be this Rubik's Cube because it's got the exact size box for the parts that they want and they, and they can wa- 
comp together one for you know under a hundred bucks. I think is the current going rate for everything you need, including by the way, a pre-made PID controller with digital readout. In case you know, in case you value your time and don't want to write your own code, you can now get one of these controllers for I think like thirty-five bucks, and they work. They work like like gangbusters. The only other thing I'd say is uh, when you're buying one, and you're going to have to control the heater. And there's two ways you can go. You can go with a regular relay, but the regular relay is going to sit there going click, 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 click. I hate that. So I go for what's called a solid-state relay, and a solid-state relay uh, is completely dead silent. And you can run it at whatever rate you want, and it never, ever wears out, but they are more expensive. So instead of like 4 bucks, 5 bucks, you're going to spend like 20 bucks, something like that. 20 bucks, 20 bucks. But anyway, I would say go get the one for 20 bucks just because that extra $20 for that little bit of silence in your kitchen instead of having to click, click. Let me put it this way. My stove, right, can't run off a solid-state relay relay because I'm actually opening and closing a solenoid valve for my uh, – I'm actually closing a solenoid valve for my my gas, and it's irritating because it's like click, click. Click. But luckily, most of the time when I'm running my oven, I'm making pizza. Go To go back to Pepperoni Bill's pizza question, I'm making pizza. And so I have it on full bore uh, blast-out mode so that I can get it up to 850 degrees and you know light, light everything on fire basically. Uh, okay. So uh, on my way out, I will say that uh, you should all I, – I, I wish that everyone had the money to go buy – uh, Nathan Mirvold and Chris Young's new Modernist Cuisine book. They've already sold well over half of the initial printing and they've ordered uh, another printing on it. Uh, it is a pretty cool book. I am extremely jealous. I visited their lab. They have uh, a water jet cutter, a crazy water jet cutter. Like They have a scanning electron microscope. And by the way, Nathan has one at his house too in case he should want to do – in case you know he doesn't want to have to go into the office to do a scanning <laughs> electron microscopy. <laughs> You know, he can do his scanning electron microscopy at home. You know, you know, you know. He, he they have a cr- they have a crappy, awesome, like you know, regular light microscope at the office because he wanted to keep his good one at work. So like, I don't know. Anyway, I'm extraordinarily jealous of the equipment they have. But we had a really good time uh, out at the meal there, and um, I'm sure you'll be seeing about it. Uh, you know, it's on Wired Magazine, I think, a lot of the things. You can see the kinds of things they were doing in in the meal. Oh, and I had their ultrasonic french fries. So Josh Ozersky, uh, who you know, he writes things, right? He writes things. Josh Ozersky. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, so he writes things. So he came back and he says, yeah. He said, no, he doesn't talk that. Well, actually, he does he kind does. of talk that way. Yeah. So he goes, you know, you got to, you know, Nathan Mirvold and, you know, Chris Young's ultrasonic french fry is the world's greatest french fry. So I had the ultrasonic french fry, and the ultrasonic french fry was quite good. And I spoke to Nathan. They've done the SPL. He likes them, but he likes the ultrasonic one better. But um, <clears throat> I have not yet published. I want you guys to know this. On the blog, I have published my 3 eighths inch uh, SPL. That's my enzyme that I use recipe. I will place up – I mean his French fry was very good. I'm not saying – but I will place my new half-inch because he was a half-inch French fry guy. I will place my half-inch French fry up against it uh, and we should also try maybe his ultrasonic technique along with our SPL technique to see whether we can do the double ridiculous whamdamula of like uh, – of monstrosity French fry madness because that might be the French fry to kill all French fries. But remember – there is no such thing as the perfect French fry because French fry is something that can always be improved. All right? And that's Cooking Issues. We'll see you next week. Vicious, vicious 
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Omofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's mofad.eventbrite.com. Once again, mofad.eventbrite.com. 
V-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.